0: Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real life sisters who binge on historical
1: drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your
0: teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters.
1: I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about historical films and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at mishanbostongroup.com backslash Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. In this episode, we're talking with
0: documentary filmmaker John Valadez about The Head of Joaquin Murrieta, the drama series on Amazon Prime that shares the same title as John's documentary that had its broadcast premiere on PBS in 2017. John Valadez is a Peabody Award-winning filmmaker and has received two national Emmy nominations. His body of work explores race, power, and identity through the Latinx experience. John grew up in Seattle, Washington, taught photography in India, and is professor of film, television, and media at the University of Michigan. Over the past 25 years, John Valadez has directed documentary films for CNN, and primetime national PBS series, including Independent Lens and POV Documentary Series, and also Latino Americans and Latin Music USA. His most recent film, American Exile, which premiered on PBS in 2021, explores the deportation of US military veterans. The film played an important role in helping to change national policy, allowing deported veterans and their families to return home. In his documentary, The Head of Joaquin Murrieta, John comes to the end of his longtime search and believes he has the head of the legendary Mexican outlaw Joaquin Marietta, who blazed a trail of revenge across California until he was caught and decapitated in 1853. John embarks on a cross-country road trip through history, myth, and memory to bury the fabled head of Joaquin Marietta, and discovers chilling parallels with his own family
1: history. The action-packed Western drama series, The Head of Joaquin Murrieta, takes place in the time of the gold rush and the end of the U.S.-Mexican War. Juan Manuel Bernal plays a mischievous Joaquin Murrieta, a legendary figure also known as the Mexican Robin Hood. The paths of Murieta and Joaquin Carrillo, played by Alejandro Spitzer, intersect in the middle of a violent misunderstanding. They end up joining forces to battle a common enemy, Harry Love, head of the California Rangers, played by Steve Wilcox. Rounding out the Joaquin's cast is Yoshira Escaraga as Demase, Emiliano Zorita as Casey, Michael Wilson Morgan as Father Christopher Kelly and Becky Zhu Wu as Adela Chang. The series was created by Mauricio Leva Cock and Diego Ramirez Shrimp and developed by Amazon Studios in Latin America and Amazon Prime and Colombian production company, Dynamo.
0: Welcome, John, to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters.
2: Oh, great. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Where were you when you first heard the story of the real Joaquin Marietta? What made his story stick with you to the point that you were ready to pick up and take a cross-country road trip and produce a documentary about it?
2: Well, I, I, I'm not sure when I first heard about Joaquin Murrieta. I, I, I remember when I was, it's probably around the time I was in high school or college, because Joaquin Murrieta actually became an icon of the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there's a filmmaker named Luis Valdez who was involved with the uh, you know, farm worker movement with Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. And he had done a, a, a film early in his career um, about that was based on a poem written by an activist uh, during that period. And it really helped elevate Joaquin Murrieta to be um, an icon of resistance against uh, racism and exclusion. And of course, then Luis Valdez went on to do Zoot Suit and La Bamba and et cetera, et cetera. But, 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 but I knew him first as kind of an icon um, of Chicano pride before I really knew much about the story um, of the gold rush, etc. So
0: tell us how Marietta's story is an American story, but you just told us that it is part of Chicano history.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, you, know, you know, he certainly became an icon of resistance against uh, racism and oppression and exclusion. But I think what's most important about uh, the story of Joaquin Murrieta is that it really draws in stark relief um, the experiences of Mexican-Americans in this country. Um, that, uh, that we're not newcomers here. Right. Because when the California gold rush happened, there were a lot of uh, 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 Mexicans who were living in Mexican territory, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, California. All of that was Mexico. So the truth is, is that um, many of us did immigrate to this country, but it's really the white people who are the immigrants. Um, they traveled to California, which was Mexican territory. So um, it, I think it lays bare that myth, but it also lays bare uh, the idea that, um, you know, what happened to Native Americans was so brutal and and, and sick. And, um, and a similar thing kind of happened to Mexican Americans, because like Native Americans, we too were a conquered people because of the U.S.-Mexico War, which, uh, you know, ended up, Dividing Mexico in half and giving the United States the entire West. And so we experienced uh, dislocation. Um, We experienced being murdered in large numbers and driven from our homes. And um, so there are a lot of parallels between us and Native people. And at the same time, it kind of, Joaquin Murrieta, I think, reminds us that we do belong here. We're not interlopers, we're not foreigners, but we have a claim to this uh, land as much as anybody else. That,
0: that's what drew me to the series is that they showed you how the borders shifted and yes. California's being and who was affected by this, yeah. this um, after you have to the
2: remember, war. You have to remember in, um, in, in 1848, when the US Mexico War ended, and that was the same year that gold was discovered in California. Okay. Um, that at that time to be a U.S. citizen, you had to be white. You right, couldn't, you yes. had to be a white person to be a U.S. citizen. And that created a real conundrum for, uh, for Mexicans because part of the treaty to you know to establish peace between the two countries was that was that the Mexicans who were living in that territory that would now become the United States would become citizens of the United States and yet if you look at Mexican people we kind of run the gambit you know some of us look very european and others of us look very indigenous and there's a lot that's kind of in between so we were given the designation regardless of our phenotype um, that we would be considered legally white. So on paper, all Mexicans who are now Mexican Americans are legally white and yet, mm, you know, we were really citizens in name only because we were never really treated uh, equally to other uh, white Americans. So, and that I think begins to explain a lot about, uh, you know, racism, um, you know, in the United States, uh, and the position that uh, Mexican Americans would uh, inherit, and what we would struggle with in the ensuing uh, decades. Yeah, and this is the, the
1: complex history that, as I recall, in my public school years was never talked about. Uh, We learned about the gold rush as this time where people were flocking to the West to make their fortunes. And all of the folks that are in this series and that you also talk about in your documentary, Native peoples, Mexican Americans, and even the Chinese were invisible in the history I was taught. So uh, tell us a little bit about how were you taught history when you were in school in Seattle and Uh, I know you have you have uh, they're probably adult children now, but, you know, history is is part of the curriculum. Were they taught something different or, you know, what's what's changed? What stayed the same in terms of how history is taught about that time period and the folks who inhabited that part of the U.S.?
2: Oh, boy. You know, um, unfortunately, I went through my entire educational career and I don't recall even hearing a mention of Mexican Americans in that, you know, you know, in my entire educational experience. Um, It was as though we were phantoms of history, as though we Mm -hmm. were ghosts. Uh, we, We, you know, we didn't exist. And, um and that absence I think led me and my other uh, you know young colleagues in school um, to begin to believe that Mexicans well were losers um that we really hadn't contributed to the development of this country in any meaningful way we hadn't you know, ex- explored the geography of this land. We we didn't. We were not the great inventors. We were not the captains of industry. We were not the great artists or poets, uh, etc. Et and so we were kind of nothing, um, uh, because because of that absence. And of course, that's absolutely not true. Um, in fact, uh, much of American history. Um, unfolded the way that it did because of our contributions. I mean, all of those places—Texas, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, California—those are Spanish names. Yes, <laughs> um, the geography has the imprint. <laughs> Montana. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you know, San Diego. I mean, you know, Austin. You know, whatever, well, not Austin, that's Stephen F. Austin. Anyway. But um, it it, so so the California gold rush was, you know, I was taught history as a kind of um, an east west affair. Mm -hmm. Right? History began at this string of little colonies, you know, huddled along the eastern seaboard, and there and and it slowly moved west, you know, the Homestead Act and Lewis and Clark, and you know, until westward expansion and manifest destiny created a nation of continental proportions. Um, And I suppose that's one way of looking at history. And it's not that that's not true. It's just that there's so much more to reality beyond that. That's one way of seeing history. But another way of seeing it is that history is not an east-west experience. It is a south-north experience Mm -hmm. because people had been migrating from Mexico to what we call North America and back uh, since the beginning of time, uh, ancient trade routes and and that all of the American West was Mexican territory and before that Spanish territory and that the first European language in North America was Spanish and that uh, in 1598, a generation before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, uh, the Spanish had explored the continent from the plains of Kansas to the Sea of Cortez and charted its geography and began to establish missions and presidios and, and, and you know, and all of that is, uh, you know, is, is an incredible part of our history that's, you know, vibrant and alive today. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of blind spots that I, growing up, began to see as sort of self-serving. Mm -hmm. Um, And I began to see a lot of it as just kind of distortion. Um, But for um, you have to understand that when 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 gold was discovered in 1848, the first people to go to the gold fields were the people who lived nearby. So the first miners in the California gold rush, Native Americans some Europeans and American citizens who had you know, established themselves on the frontier, but mostly it was Mexican citizens, Californios as they called themselves. And they were really the first miners to start taking gold you know, out of the ground. And then the second wave came from Northern Mexico for two reasons. One reason is because of geography, it was just closer. They got word of the gold before the people on the East Coast because it was, you didn't have to go as far. And the people in Sonora were miners. That's what they did. They pulled gold and copper, you know, out of the earth. And so when they got up to the California gold rush, um, they knew exactly what to do, how to set up shop, what would be the best places to go uh, to find gold and were very successful. So by the time the 49ers came, the third wave from the Eastern seaboard and from uh, Russia and from other places in Latin America and from China, um, Mexicans had already taken up all the best plots of land. And that's where Joaquin Murrieta comes in. According to the story, was one of those early miners from Sonora who had a claim um, and was, uh, you know, thriving when the, when the Americans, the latecomers, mm-hmm. were right
0: yeah. yeah.
1: So is, did your children learn this history? Did they learn anything about the Mexican, Mexican-American contributions to U.S. history when they were in school? Are you aware? Did they come home and say, Dad, guess what they said today?
2: No, they learned nothing. I mean, they learned it from me because you know I'm a crazy Chicano filmmaker, but but no, they didn't get any of that. I mean, you know, nothing. So, yeah, so uh, while much has changed, um, at the same time, sometimes it seems like not much has changed, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we love
1: hidden history or the invisible erased history because I learned some years ago, there was actually a um, black underground railroad that went from the Southern states into Mexico. And you can still find remnants of those escaped formerly enslaved people in communities in Mexico, including some of the songs that made their way across the border. And also learned that the first African presence uh, in this hemisphere that's documented of course was in Mexico before Jamestown. So there's such a rich history that I'm always excited to learn about and wish that they had taught it in school because then maybe I would have been more interested in history. But back to the um, your film and this series what were your thoughts when you found out that there was a series that Had the same title as your documentary that preceded that that series on Amazon.
2: Well, for about two seconds, I thought I should sue. (laughs) Copyright. What the hell are they doing? You know these knuckleheads. You know my territory. And then I thought about it for a second, and I thought, well, you know, gosh darn it. Um, there are a lot of actors and directors and writers and cinematographers and sound people who are getting jobs and are able to explore history and tell, you know, tell a historical drama. Um, and I just thought, nah, you know what, let them, they can do whatever they want. I'm kind of <laughs> afraid that, you know, that, 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 that other artists are finding ways of, finding, you know, self-expression uh, through historical drama, and so then I thought I'm just being cranky. Let's, let, <laughs> you know, let us rejoice, and we'll call it a we'll call it a common victory.
0: Yeah, you could. This brings attention. That's how we found you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's
0: all good. It's all good. Uh John. Another thing we found to find you was an interview on this public affairs series from terrorists in two. 2016. And that was produced by public media station KRWG in New Mexico. And in that interview, you said, no racial or ethnic group has a monopoly on great stories about our history and the making of this country. What drew us to this Western on Amazon is it tells the story from perspectives of people of different ethnicities and races, the whole hue of Mexico. Ooh. He was of Mexico. And in early Hollywood westerns, which you also touch on in your documentary, Mexicans, Chinese, Native Americans are the villains or the background or the comic relief. What does including their, these stories, I'll say these stories, into the story of the American West, tell us about the making of the United States? So it's, can expand on that what what are the benefits of telling these stories
2: well the i I think the biggest benefit of telling telling history from multiple perspectives is because number one it's true there are multiple different kinds of people who had different kinds of experiences and if we're just hearing uh you know sort of you know one cultural experience we're really not i don't know if that's really it's a slice of history, but it's not history as it was. Um, the other thing is, is that, is that you know, when, when multiple voices are not included, um, what tends to happen is you get a vision of the past that will inevitably tend to glorify white accomplishments. Um, And there are some wonderful white accomplishments that should be glorified, but I, mm, but it can easily fall into distortion and white supremacy and just all kinds of uh, things. Like what I was talking about when I was a kid, you know, that, that, that we hadn't made any contributions. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, You know, when, when, uh, when Anglos first came to the, uh, to the, to the, to the gold fields and Mexicans had taken up many, pretty much most of the, you know, the best spots for getting gold. Um, it really began to initiate, uh, the only way I can describe it is just like a killing spree that took place, you know, throughout California. Um, I, uh, I, for about 50 from about 1850 to the you know to uh, the turn of the century about uh, historians estimate about 150 thousand Native Americans perished mm. during that time sometimes by from starvation, sometimes by disease, but often just outright murder. They were cleared out and it was legal to enslave native people. so um, you know a lot of uh, native women, were you know forced you know, to work in, in brothels and children as well. Um, many municipalities, including the state of California, had um, bounties for, for Indian scalps. It was a dollar for a child or a woman, and it was $4 for an adult male. And so people made a pretty good living from collecting Indian scalps, which, of course, then you had to kill the people. Well, what is the difference between an Indian scalp and a Mexican scalp? I mean, they look the same. Okay, yeah. so Mexicans get hunted too. Also, Mexicans have the best gold, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, have staked out the best territory, so their claims get jumped. And then, of course, Mexicans retaliate, as do Native Americans. And hence, that's where the story of Joaquin Murrieta comes from, dispossessed Mexican miners who feel that uh, they've been wronged. And they begin to organize. And if they can't mine, well, then they're going to mine the miners. <laughs> and they're going to they're take gold from them. And it just became a huge, uh, huge mess. The, the, the modern varios in California that we know of today you know, east places like East L.A. or the Mission District in Santa Barbara, or in um, in San Francisco, right? These were formed because Mexicans fled the gold fields in fear of their lives, were driven out, and so they huddled into little communities for their own protection. And that's how the modern Mexican American barrios in California were formed because of this, uh, you know, you know, murder and fear and dislocation and basically ethnic cleansing that was uh taking place so um it was a really really uh 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 sick time in our history but you know it's true and we should talk about it and understand it and uh and that's really important i was listening to
1: a post someone put up today of Tanahasi Coates where he said about 70% of history is uncomfortable. <laughs> it's not positive. But we need to know it in order to understand what it means to be human.
2: Because yeah, are we recording this
1: is good. Yeah, oh,
0: we are still recording. I may even oh, leave the helicopter in there. Oh, okay. But um uh, would oh, you want to respond to that?
2: Yeah, well, look, from a filmmaking perspective, right, what makes for a great narrative? Well, conflict. Conflict drives narrative. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, without making any judgments about history, it's awfully exciting because there's an awful lot of conflict. I mean, this is really rich, interesting stuff to just get into and explore, And is it heart-wrenching? Of course. Is it it inspiring? Of course. All of the above. Um, But because it gets ugly at times, I think that's a reason to want to delve into it. Uh, From a filmmaker's perspective, those are darn good stories. Absolutely. You've been enjoying
1: Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at
0: michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content.
1: Now, Back to our podcast conversation.
0: One thing I like about the Amazon series is that they put it in the Western jo- genre. You know, um, Westerns are the true American genre. We were watching those when, because I used to maybe, I, it's not my, my number one go-to, but it was one of the few places where maybe I would see a person of color.
2: Hmm. -hmm.
0: A native, but then the depictions, you know, it kind of made me um, cringe, tune tune out. (laughs) So I I became very selective about Westerns, the ones I would see. And I have some favorites, definitely. Um, And this one, this is that's the principal reason I was drawn to this one was because of the multiple stories that it was telling. About that time in California and the gold rush, and it was just debunking everything that mm-hmm. I have been taught in school about that history and the Alamo. Let's throw that in there as well. Right. Which you, yeah. you discuss in your documentary. But another thing you may not know about me, John, is that I'm a playwright. Ooh. When I can't be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I wrote a play about Ida B. Wells and the catalyst that brought her into the anti-lynching movement using her journalism as her weapon of choice. And she was a, for our listeners, she was a journalist in the late 19th century, and she began investigating and writing about the lynchings of African Americans in the South. And she found that the accusations of rape by of white women by black men were fabricated and um, and also were designed to intimidate and disenfranchise African-Americans who were starting businesses, owning property. Um, who has been collecting the stories around the lynchings of Mexicans Americans in Texas, California, as you talk about in your documentary? And this is, really perplexes me. How is it that we still have a hanging tree As an official landmark in Texas, with businesses carrying the Hanging Tree name, at the same time that there are (laughs) bans on teaching the racial history of the US in public schools. I don't know if that's irony or just kind of bizarre.
2: It's, it's, I, I think it's a form of, 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 mental illness is what it is. Um, I mean, I, yeah, you know, the Hanging Tree Restaurant, it's almost as though, uh, you know, uh, extrajudicial killing has become kitsch, um, if you can imagine such a thing. But yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's true. In fact, you know, in proportion to their numbers, uh, Mexicans were lynched in the West as often as African-Americans were lynched in the South. And that's, you know, and that's according to the data that we have. I mean, I, surely there were more Black people lynched in the South than we really will ever know. Uh, same with Mexicans in the West. Um, but this is really, uh, has come to light fairly recently. Um, there's a book called The Forgotten Dead uh, written by two scholars, one out of Rutgers University and the other guy is a British guy uh, from the UK. And um, they, in, the, in that remarkable book, uh, went through uh, newspaper articles from the 19th century and through uh, death records and you know criminal court proceedings in small towns across the West, just decades of research in order to uncover this and um, God bless them. I mean, geez, uh, just a monumental work of, of, of scholarship. But that's but that's how we know is because we're, we're now beginning to get more scholarship on Mexican-Americans when previously, you know, white people didn't care. and um, And Mexican-Americans, I had not attained, um, uh, 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 you know, the numbers um, of educated people who would have the skill set in order to write the books, the articles, uh, the films, etc. It's only, you know, recently that that we're beginning to get into that position. It's very different, I think, for Mexican-Americans than it has been for African-Americans, because African-Americans did begin to build institutions of higher learning, Um, and Mexican-Americans, I think because of our small numbers um, until relatively recently, didn't really have that kind of intellectual uh, infrastructure that we were able to build, and so I think we're just now uh, beginning to do that. We
1: were also intrigued by this series because the characters in it are not passive victims. It's not just what was done to them. They want justice for the transgressions that have been committed against them, whether it was seizing their, their land or murdering families, exploiting their labor, uh, lynching people for minor offenses or, or just because, which unfortunately is also a familiar story. Um, And yet we have the Anglos characterizing the Mexicans, the natives, and the Chinese immigrant peoples as outlaws and savages when they were seeking retribution. But the California Rangers and, and the deserters in the California Rangers see themselves as law and order and doing God's will. And I would I think we're still living with the repercussions of the pains of history. I, I love Anaïs Nen has a term, the, the chamber of horrors that we call history. Mm. So, but you also say that history is important in order for us to create a new American story. So how does facing our history, as painful as it may be, and as seen both in your documentary as well as this series, Help us create a new American story.
2: Well, well, I think for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is is that America was never white. Um, we we've sort of at least when I was growing up, and you know, we were taught that it was largely a uh, white venture and that just isn't true. You know, it just isn't true. It's just it's just way more complex than that. And when we recognize that complexity, um, we understand that as the demographics in this country are shifting rather rapidly, and you know, by 2050 we will be, if the demographers are correct, a majority-minority country, and by the turn of the next century we will be some iteration of a Latino country, um, and we shift away and white people in terms of their numbers become smaller and smaller. I think what it tells us is we don't really have anything to fear or wig out about. (laughs) Um, uh, We've all always been here. As much as we've uh, fought with one another, we've also made love. We've also made families. We've also made community ties with one another. And that's another part of the story, right? Mexican-Americans are what we call a mestizo people which means we are uh, 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 a combination of European uh, blood and indigenous blood. We're neither this nor that. We're sort of uh, everything thrown into the pot. And isn't that really the story of America? I mean, if you really look at people's DNA, I think you're gonna find that we're all far more connected than, uh, than we ever imagined. And that we are intimately, historically bound to one another, tied together in ways that can never really be unbound. Um, uh, 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 black people actually are kind of Latino. And white people are actually kind of black and, and Latinos are actually kind of Asian. We have all these, we have all this mixing on all these different levels, whether it's our, our, our language or our customs or, um, or our phenotype or the food we eat. We've always been completely mixed up with one another. And the sooner we recognize that fact and celebrate it and just, you know, and go with it, I think that the sooner, the happier we're all going to be because it's just the truth. And it's actually a darn good thing. So while history is a chamber of horrors, this is true. It's also a chamber of love and celebration and community. Uh, Both of those things are true. And I don't want to you know, I, I, you know, you know, I want to keep all of that in mind. Yes,
1: well, we uh, like to say that even though people have had to deal with injustice for, how, I guess since we've been here, there have always been movements to create justice at the same time. Yes, so both true. and are true for yeah, sure.
2: Absolutely.
1: A lot of times we're hearing about these stories in history for the first time through like documentaries and dramatic series. And one, we uh, did a podcast about, uh, some months ago was called Mr. Sunshine, which is a Korean drama that we discovered um, that takes place in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And we learned how deep the U S it was called Joseon at the time, but U S Korean <laughs> relations are. And um you know, the, uh, and we've even visited places that mark that history in D.C., like the uh, Korean Legation Building. How do you bring history into teaching your uh, documentary filmmaking courses?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually really easy because, you know, documentary film, what are they? They're uh, uh, stories that are carved out of reality as opposed to carved out of fiction, right? And so if you look at the history of documentary film, it really started as a mm, white people's enterprise, Right, the the early documentary films. It, 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 it was very. It was an expensive medium. You actually had film. It had to go to a lab. You know, you had The it, it was just you needed expensive equipment. It was large, unwieldy, um, and if you didn't have a lot of resources, you couldn't make a film. So the, so the early documentaries tend to be white people, uh, Americans and Europeans, but as time moves on. The technology changes, it becomes smaller, it becomes more mobile. And then you start having more voices. You start having women making films. Barbara Koppel wins the Academy Award for Harlan County, USA about minors going on strike. And you start hearing stories about working people. And, um, and uh, you start uh, getting more, 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 more poetic visions. And you start getting wonderful black filmmakers, and then you start getting Latino and Asian filmmakers, and all of a sudden, um, uh, uh, people of color, women, uh, poor white people who are also excluded, uh, begin to have the means to tell their own story. And not only tell their own story, because I guess everybody always had access to, you know, a a, a paper and a pen if they could read or write. Um, But uh, but now you could take your story and you could project it, you know, across the earth, uh, through the internet and through the web, et cetera, through broadcast. And what ends up happening is that we start getting a cacophony of voices that brings a tremendous amount of nuance to our history because, uh, people are telling the histories that they have lived or they've learned or that grow out of their community, um, and it's just got to be one of the most beautiful things you could ever imagine. I, I think it's the equivalent to, the, uh, to when, the, uh, uh, when the drum press first started making, uh, you know, newspapers for mass consumption. You know, it's one of those moments. And, um, and except here, everybody has the possibility of being literate because it's images and sound. As long as you can get a computer, which can still be a challenge for some, um, but even that's becoming less and less expensive as time goes on. So it's a kind of democratization um, that's, uh, that's taken place. And I think it's really an accelerant for social justice and for um, uh, spanning divides of difference and finding new connections for positive change and understanding. Because if you're not exposed to something, You know, you you just might be ignorant because you just never knew. And that that happens a lot, too.
0: I want to um, for our listeners who want to see both the dramatic series, The Head of Joaquin Marietta and John Valadez's documentary, The Head of Joaquin Marietta. I just want to make a note for those of you who are going straight to Amazon Prime for the dramatic series that it is rated 18 plus mature audiences for violence and other content. So there's an advisory on there, but you don't have that issue, John. So where can people find your documentary now and tell us what you're working on today if you want to update us?
2: Oh, okay. Well, in terms of the documentary, um, I can send you a link and people can go to your website. How about that? That works. Yeah. Excellent. That's what so I'll send you a link and, and 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 any listeners can can check it out there. Um what was the other what was the other
0: part of the What are you doing now? What are you working on now? Um, anything you want to share
2: or Oh yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm working on a five-hour series called the Latin Lens. It's a history of Latinos in American cinema. But what it really Whoa. Whoa. is. Oh, okay. You'll be back. It, what, all, all the stars and glitz and glamour, uh, that's all in there. But what it really is, is it's the story of race in America told from a Brown perspective um, through the Hollywood experience. Um, what you have to understand is that when Hollywood first started, um, one of the first genres that took off um, across the country and became enormously popular in the teens, right, um, were the greaser films. Um, these were a series, uh, a, a genre of films that was produced, uh, including by D.W. Griffith, and we can get to that in a moment. But um, but the greaser films, and they had tied, so the word greaser basically is a pejorative term for Mexicans, mm-hmm. okay? Meaning, you know, shiftless, uh, you know, untrustworthy, prone to criminality, uh, lascivious, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, so and they had these titles, you know, the Greaser's Revenge, the Greaser's Gauntlet, Bronco Billy meets the Greaser. I mean, they even have that in the title. And all of these films kind of followed a similar formula, which was there was some Mexican guy in town who commits some kind of transgression, often against a white woman, and so then Bronco Billy or some other cowboy has to go take care of business, and at the end the Mexican gets lynched. Okay, uh. <laughs> sounds familiar. So this was it. This was in this was in the teens, and so why did this develop? Well, we had just had the U.S.-Mexico War about 50, 50 years earlier. There were, pl- you know, they needed uh, you need heroes and villains and movies, and uh, it's a white audience, so Mexicans probably aren't going to be complaining, and um. And so, so, so the story of the Latin lens is really the story of how Latinos first appear as the foils in front of the camera, right? That's what we were, right? The buffoons, the, the, the criminals, the bandits, in order to make white people look good so that they could shine and be heroic and courageous. Um, but over the next hundred and something years, um, Latinos go from being the foils in front of the lens to increasingly being the creative force behind the camera, okay? And so what the, what the, what the, what the series attempts to explore is how did that happen? What happened? The, you know, that that trajectory took place. And it, so, so the film is really, it, it's, it's about Hollywood it's about immigration. It's about war and peace. It's about public policy. It's about economics. It's about changes in, um, in technology. Um, it's about McCarthyism. Um, it's about all of those that you have to understand something about all of that to see how the dynamic plays out. And it's also about how Latinos gained agency, how they tried different tactics, different approaches. You know, some went along with the game in order to be employed and others hid who they were by changing their names so so that their Latin identity would not be revealed. And then others flaunted their Latino identity. I mean, depending on what the audience needed and what the economic conditions were and what people were willing to pay for at the time, so much so that in the 1920s, there was a huge Latin craze and white people were giving themselves Latino names in order to get work so that they could be stars (laughs) in the silver screen. Everybody wanted to be Latino. Well, then the Depression happens and Latinos get deported. Half a million Mexican-Americans deported. to. So that's what the series is about. It's about American history and it's about that uh, wonderful and horrible... Trajectory that that that, that Latinos have, um, how they've invented and reinvented uh, American mythology, and uh, recrafted it um, for a new vision of who we are, and and so that's that that that's what the story is. It's more than just uh, about Hollywood. It's about it's about it's about who we are as a country. I think.
1: Yeah, we'll certainly be excited to see that series. I can't wait. Wow. Well, I
2: wish I wish you were on some big funding panel because <laughs> now I got to raise the money. So that's the other part of it. But 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 I think it's um, I think it's a great project because not only does it does it reveal something about who we are, but it also uh, it does it through the mythology of, of Hollywood, which is so exciting. Um, uh, and and, and yeah, 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 and I think you can really see how our uh, conception of ourselves has changed over time and how Latinos have played a critical role in recasting um, what America um, is, but also what America ought to be. So, yeah, it's really exciting.
0: Now, John, we've come to the part of the podcast what we call our lightning round, and it's actually inspired by the Actors Studio. So we use this time to ask our guests questions that relate to the themes of the podcast, historical drama with the Boston Sisters, with a twist that are tailored to our guests' ex- you know expertise or
1: experience experiences lives
0: (laughs) it's not that deep (laughs) (laughs) so i'm going to kick it off if you are ready what historical time period would you want
2: to visit and why oh the future I'm I'm forward leaning. I think I think I think I, I think there's there there's a chance it can be absolutely apocalyptic and uh and, and cringy and terrible, but I kinda suspect, because I'm an optimist, that it's gonna be really exciting. So yeah, yeah. I'm 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 for going into the great unknown.
1: All right, create the history. Yeah. John, you revealed in your documentary that you know something about your ancestry, your ancestors. Um, which of your ancestors would you like to meet and what would you talk to them about?
2: Wow, that's really tough. That was deep. <laughs> yeah, that's really tough. Um, I think honestly, I would not need to go too far back. I think I would have liked to have spent a little bit more time with my grandparents. Mm. Um, you know, not, not quite as much time. And of course, when you're a little kid, you don't think of all the things that you would like to ask or know about um, as an adult. And the reason why, why, why I say not that far back, because look, you know, the further you go back in time, this is just in my mind, right? You have two parents, then it's four grandparents, then it's eight. Then it's sixteen. Then it's thirty-two. Then it's sixty-four. I mean, you go back far enough, you have ten thousand. Re- you're ba- you're like related to everybody. We're I, all mean, <laughs> I mean, cousins. I mean, right? Yeah. So kind of like it becomes it's so diffused that it could be you know anything, um, which is kind of cool in a way. Um, but I think uh, 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 knowing more about uh, Uh, the Mexican-American experience, because my my, my grandparents were migrant farm workers, right? Um, And to know more about that experience because I always try to keep that in mind. I mean, look, I make films. How gosh darn lucky is that? How many people get to do that? I'm a college professor. How many people get to hang out with young people and we talk about movies all day? You know, that is like such a blessing, you know. And so I always try to keep in mind and remind myself when I see uh, what's going on at the border or I see people who are homeless or I see people who are struggling or can't pay the rent or are in some kind of dire circumstances, I always remember that the only thing that separates me from them is the thin veil of time. We are the same. I, My family was there. Mm-hmm. And we can't, can't, can't lose that because the minute we lose that, we lose our humanity. And so that's why that connection to my grandparents, my parents are still around, so I got them. But that's why that connection to the grandparents, I think, grounds me and, and, and connects me to uh Chicanidad and to my people and not just my people but to all people who are who who, who are who are struggling uh, for justice and inclusion and uh, just a fair shake in life you know thank you for that
0: the last question is your history what three items would you put into a time capsule that reflect The times that you've lived in will live through.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, I think I would have to. uh, I think it would. The only thing that it would really be, I think, would for me would be maybe my films. You know, that's kind of who I am. I mean, you know, I'm tempted to say something family related, but nothing's, you know, coming, you know, to my head right now. But um, but I think but I think the films listen, this is the way I think about film. Okay, Um, I think when I'm making a film, I think about the audience today and that's real important, of course. But really. The big picture is when you make a movie you're creating a little time capsule and you're throwing it, you're lobbing it into the future because those films are gonna be there 10, 20, 50, 100, 2000 years from now, who knows? And and it's gonna remind people we were here. This is what happened. We contributed. We were jerks. We were lovers. We were fighters. We were kind. We were selfish. But you know what? We, we 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 helped build this country. We helped you know build American democracy, and uh, and we are part of the legacy. So that those people who look back will not be in the same position ever again. That I was in when I looked at history and I said, "Where are the Mexicans?" You know, they will never have to answer that question again. It will be there and it will be indisputable. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the gift I hope to give.
0: The eight-part drama series, The Head of Joaquin Marietta, is available on Amazon Prime. Fees may apply. You can watch John Valadez's documentary of the same title for a limited time from a link on our website. Go to the webpage for this podcast episode at mishanbostongroup.com backslash Sisters.
1: We invite you to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy the conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters and enjoy past episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonnebostongroup.com Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina
0: Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at mishanbostongroup.com backslash Sisters.
1: Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston
0: Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients, or affiliates.
1: This is Michonne Boston. And this is Taquina Boston. Thank you for listening.